listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Two tragedies and a mystery, courtesy of God's Word. Open with me to Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 41. Two tragedies and a mystery. The context here of what we're going to begin to read in verse 41 of Luke 20 is that this happens on the heels right after Jesus has just done a teaching on the resurrection, the resurrection from the dead. And he's had to confront the Sadducees. They're the guys who were sad, you see, because they did not believe in the literal bodily resurrection from the dead. And the scribes who had a contest with the Sadducees, there was a conflict of interest between the two of them. The scribes believed in the resurrection from the dead. Sadducees didn't. And this is why we see the scribes in verse 39 saying, teacher, you've spoken well. They're complimenting Jesus. And here we would expect Jesus now to return the compliment. They've given Jesus, they've lobbed him a big softball, saying, teacher, you've spoken well. We agree with the resurrection right on. We know that those Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They're way off. And now you would expect Jesus now to return the compliment back to them, but Jesus doesn't do that. The master communicator communicating masterfully now responds and gives his answer here as we find in verse 41. But he, Jesus, said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, this is one of those passages of Scripture where we again see demonstrated Jesus saying some things to the crowd and mass, and then aside, zeroing in to the disciples and saying some things that are specifically for the ears, the hearts, the minds, the souls of the disciples. And this is one of those instances You see in verse 41, but he said to them, this is where Jesus is saying to everybody, scribes included. Now we'll get to what he says to the scribes, the mystery of what he says to the scribes later on in just a moment. But first I'd like to focus our attention on two tragedies. And we go to the middle of what Jesus says here in verses 45, 46, and 47. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, this is where Jesus is zeroing in on the disciples, not just the entire crowd, not to the entire crowd, but particularly to the disciples. So if you say that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, 
then these words have practical, pertinent relevance for you. They have for me. These are words spoken in a timeless fashion to anybody and everybody who says that they're a follower of Jesus Christ. In the hearing of all the people, verse 45, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Now, I'm in the midst of a cold right now, feeling a little bit under the weather. When I read a passage of Scripture like this, it sends a shiver down my spine that's not particularly welcome. These will receive the greater condemnation. And this is something that should get the attention of each and every one of us who claims to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is not good to hear Jesus say these things. This is a warning coming from the mouth of Jesus to our ears and hopefully something that resonates at a heart level, that it sinks into our hearts and begins to change the way we live. You know, the way we listen has a direct bearing on the way we live. If we're not listening to Jesus, then Jesus' words won't be taken to heart. And if they don't find their place taking residence in the soil of our hearts, then our lives are not going to change either. Jesus has very strong words for the scribes, the guys who had the Bible memorized from Genesis all the way through Malachi. These are the guys who were called scribes or the lawyers, the teachers of the law. They have this title because they would write down. They were the original copy machine in the day and age when technology didn't exist. They were the technology. So if you wanted a translation of the Old Testament, you would go to somebody who would write that down for you. And who would you go to? The scribe. They would write down on a parchment or a scroll the passage of Scripture that you wanted. They would be the ones who would translate from the original languages to make sure that the Scriptures were not corrupted. They were the guardians of the Old Testament. They would make sure that nothing was changed from the original language, the original writings. And so their role was key. It was very significant. Very, very, very important. They had scriptures memorized. Of course, you would have scriptures memorized if you were constantly writing down the scriptures and this was the role of a scribe. And you would think that the exact opposite would be the case, that these are the guys who maybe had the heart of God down with the greatest clarity. You would think that these were the guys who would understand the heart, the mind of God more than anybody else. Now, that's what was supposed to be the case. But something had happened in the passage of time with the scribes that was not favorable. They're complimenting Jesus because they understand that Jesus taught about the resurrection. The scribes believed in the resurrection. And so they're saying, teacher, that's well said. Thank you for giving that teaching. And what Jesus says to them is something that every disciple should take heart over. Every disciple should take to heart. Just because you believe some of the things that Jesus teaches doesn't mean that you're in a safe place when it comes to the identity of Jesus. 
And this is the situation that the scribes found themselves in. So what? They believed in the resurrection. Jesus believed in the resurrection, but the scribes did not believe in the identity of Jesus Christ. It's something that you need to take to heart, I need to take to heart continually as a disciple or as a dabbler who is about to become a disciple. Just believing the same things that Jesus taught about a majority of scriptures is not enough if we fall short on coming down on the right side of the fence on the identity of Jesus Christ. The scribes had it right when it came to the resurrection from the dead, believing in the resurrection. Sadducees had it wrong. But the scribes were a million miles away from where they needed to be when it came to the identity of Jesus Christ because here he is standing in their very presence. And their reliance was on the teaching of the law, the letter of the law, the knowledge of the Old Testament. And Jesus says, you know, you can have all of it down when it comes down to a knowledge of the Old Testament, a knowledge of the Scriptures. But if you don't come down on the right side of the fence in regard to my identity, none of that other stuff really matters. And we see this presented again and again in the Scriptures that all of the Scriptures are provided for us to understand the identity of the Messiah. If you don't understand, if I don't understand the identity of the Messiah, if we're not able to rightly discern that Jesus is the one spoken of in the Old Testament and Jesus is the one spoken of in the New Testament, it doesn't matter how much Bible we know. It doesn't even matter what type of alphabets we have after our name or titles that we have in front. See, now, The scribes are the ones who have the position of influence. They have the title. They're known as the scribes. Their reputation was as people who would write down the Old Testament scriptures so that others could follow God. So they had that position of influence. And you and I as disciples of Jesus, or as a dabbler who's not yet a disciple of Jesus, We need to take note of what Jesus is presenting here because it's timeless, it's matchless, it's priceless, and it changes our lives. What Jesus is warning us about is having a position of influence, having a platform where people will look to you, and then misusing that platform for ulterior motives. See, the scribes were people who knew the word of God well enough that they should have been pointing people to the God of his word. But instead, they liked the flowing robes. They liked the best seats in the marketplace. They liked the best seats in the synagogue. They abused widows for their own personal gain. And this is why this section ties in so well with the beginning of chapter 21, which we'll get to when we cover that second tragedy. But this first tragedy is something that the scribes were experiencing and you and I can experience as well. To be in a position of influence where you have opportunity to point people to Jesus Christ and all you end up doing is pointing people to yourself. See, there are people in the ministry who have positions of influence, who have titles, who do not use that position of influence for the glory of God. They use it for the glory of self. 
And the reason why I say this sends chills down my spine is because I happen to be the person in the most public eye week after week as the lead pastor of this church. And if I were to go down, it would create a tremendous black eye for the name of Jesus by default, just like that type of thing has caused a tremendous black eye for the name and the reputation of Jesus, the honor of God in history. Just in the past few decades, you can think of maybe one or two, and if not, you can Google it, pastors, televangelists, people who had a prominent place, a prominent platform position of influence, a title before their name or alphabets after their name, who blew it and caused tremendous disgrace to Almighty God. They used their position of influence for self-gain, for notoriety. Now, there's something about when you've been given a platform by God, you can't do the ministry that God has given you on that platform without people putting you up on a pedestal on top of that platform. It happens all the time. They did this with the Apostle Paul and Apollos, where they said, these two are gods. And Paul and Apollos in the book of Acts had to set them straight and say, listen, you should not be worshiping us. You should be worshiping God. It comes with the territory. If there were a way to honor God with the platform that God gives you and not to be on that platform, you should take it. The reality is, though, humanly speaking, the platform comes with the pedestal that other people give to you. And then you have to be the one who is responsible to help people continue their gaze beyond you to look to Jesus Christ and to give glory and honor to God. People are going to put you on a pedestal. And if you're not careful, you will put yourself on a pedestal that is very very dangerous. See, the most common of failures, of stumblings, of people falling in ministry is the televangelist or the lead pastor, the senior pastor, the pastor of a church because they're in the greatest public eye. That lead pastor, that senior pastor is the one who's most visible in the church. And so, of course, the devil has that person in his crosshairs and you need to pray for your senior pastor. You need to pray for the pastors of your church. You need to be aware of that, that the enemy would love to try to discredit God. Of course, he can never discredit God ultimately, but he tries to do that by discrediting God's servants. And those who are in the greatest public eye are often under the greatest attack. Those are the ones that we typically tend to hear the most about, whether it's on a website or whether it's on the front page of the news or a magazine article or whatever the case might be, because they're in the greatest public eye. But I can tell you, from being involved in a ministry to pastors before I pastored, and by being in seminary and seeing guys who were in ministry who shouldn't have been in ministry, who wanted to go into ministry who who shouldn't have been in ministry, and for every public story of a very well-known person who fell or stumbled or caused disgrace to God, there are countless nobodies, people whose names you'll never hear, faces of which you'll never be familiar, who behind the scenes are wreaking havoc in the ministry. There are people who are in church elder teams and church deacon teams, people who are Awana 
teachers, people who are Sunday school teachers, small group teachers and small group leaders in their church who are just as guilty of liking the notoriety and the fame and the accolades in their sphere of influence that God has given them. And in some instances, unfortunately, into which they've inserted themselves. See, be careful that you don't confuse the scope of the platform with the seriousness of the crime. It is possible to have a very small ministry by comparison to somebody in public ministry. You'll always find somebody in public ministry who's got a bigger ministry than you, bigger ministry than me. You'll always find that to be the case. If you look long enough or hard enough, sometimes you don't have to look that long and that hard anyway, you'll find somebody who's more well-known than you are, has got a bigger platform than you are, has more alphabets after their name, a greater title in front of your name, in front of their name than your name. The size of the platform does not matter. What matters is what we're doing with the platform that God has given us. There are people on church teams who think that it is their primary responsibility. They feel that they are called by God. They never received a call by God, a call from God to be full-time in the ministry, never went to seminary, never went to Bible college, but they're very clear and very adamant that their calling is to keep all of those who have received that full-time calling in check. And they become... Instead of catalysts for God's movement and catalysts for God's blessing, they become flies in the ointment. And entire leadership teams, I can tell you from experience after experience, entire leadership teams of entire churches have come to a screeching, grinding halt for no other reason than one person on that leadership team being a scribe. And I'm not using that word in the complimentary fashion, but in the way that Jesus used the word. They're that person who feels that they have the corner on the spiritual market. They have the way of doing church leadership the way 99.9% of the rest of the church has no idea. They're the person who likes to be the center of attention, the focus of attention. See, you could be somebody who's in a Bible study in your house, And there are a lot of big fish in small ponds when it comes to ministry. There are all kinds of people who receive a lot of credit and honor and attention in whatever venue they may find themselves in that they're not getting, that they're using to get self-satisfaction and accolades and their identity because they're compensating for a loss in another area of life. There are many people who are finding their identity in a particular ministry, in a church, because they have not found their identity in Christ. And because they've not found their identity in Christ, they're making it their ambition. And this can be deceptive diabolical. They're finding their identity in the praises of other people. Oh, what a tremendous 
facilitator you are. What a tremendous teacher you are. Oh, this ministry would be nowhere if it wasn't for you. And with the passage of time, before you know it, we begin to believe it. We begin to believe that if it wasn't for us, in whatever ministry we might be part of, God would not be moving. It's deceptive. It's diabolical. And you've got to be careful. I've got to be careful because we can begin to do ministry. We can start to do ministry for the wrong reasons right out of the gate. But then with the passage of time, we can begin to do ministry in whatever sphere of influence it might be for the wrong ulterior motives because we get built up. People praise us. People honor us. And people begin to look to us and it kind of becomes about Jesus. It's kind of about Jesus, but we don't want Jesus to be talked about too much if the next word out of their mouth isn't me. And you've got to be careful of that. I've got to be careful of that. The scribes needed to be rebuked by Jesus because they had become spiritually careless with that. And the tremendous tragedy that we learn from the scribes is a tragedy that we need to learn about today. That if God has given you a platform, if God has given you a sphere of influence, and guess what? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he has. Because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God's objective is that you lead other people to the Jesus that you're following. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you're closely following Jesus and people are closely following you, it's only a matter of time before people who are following you begin to follow Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means to have a position of influence, a position of leadership where every place you're going you are drawing people's attention to Jesus. If God has given you a sphere of influence, and he has, there is one purpose and one purpose alone for the platform that God has given you. Do you understand? There are not two purposes for the platform. There is one purpose for the platform that when all human eyes are fixated on you and all people are looking at you as you're teaching the word of God, as you're showing people the way of God, your responsibility is then to help them realize you're not looking far enough if your eyes are stopping at me. You've got to continue to look to God Almighty, the living and true God. And the scribes lost sight of that. Scribes thought it was about their amazing knowledge of the scriptures, their memorization of scriptures, their spiritual role. It was never about what they were doing, humanly speaking. It was only and always about God, but they lost sight, and that's the tragedy. And that can happen to you, and that can happen to me. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, listen to me. I'm warning you. More importantly, it's not me warning you. It's Jesus warning you. Whether you're a Sunday school teacher, whether you work with children, that's one of the most dangerous places to be because you're never more praised and appreciated than when you're an adult around a group of children. You are their idol. 
So you've got to make sure that Jesus is their idol so that they don't become idolatrous. See, in church leadership, when you're an elder, when you're a deacon, when you're a pastor, and you have influence, you will be held to greater accountability than others if you don't point people to Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus says in verse 47, the scribes, you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. This is one of those passages of Scripture where it's hard to read, but you better read it. We better read it. You will receive a greater condemnation for misusing the platform that God has given to us. We're at a day and an age, I think it's a sign of the times, where it doesn't just happen in the world where people are lovers of themselves. It happens in the church. We want to sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on stuff, but in the middle of it, the meat and potatoes is me, myself, and I. Look what God is doing through me. If it weren't for me, God would be nothing. We would never come right out and say it. But in the secret recesses of our hearts and in our minds, the tragedy is that oftentimes we become self-deceived and we begin to think that that's the case. You know, there's a tremendous contrast to the way that the scribes, quote-unquote, ministered and the way you and I are supposed to minister as followers of Jesus. In John chapter 13, in verse 13, it's this passage of Scripture where Jesus was giving them a memorable object lesson. This is recorded only in John's gospel, the washing of the disciples' feet, where Jesus takes off his outer garment, wraps around his waist, stoops down, and begins to go around the table. He begins with Peter, and Peter says, no way, Lord, you can't do that. And Jesus says, I must do it. And then Jesus gives his commentary in John 13, 13. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus, when he says those words, truly, truly, he's being as adamant and as passionate as he could. He's saying, don't forget what I'm about to say to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The number one trait that we should be looking for in the body of Christ for somebody who will be an effective church leader is not the alphabets after their name, not the title before their name. The number one trait that we should be looking for in somebody who will be an effective church leader is whether or not that person is a servant who leads. This is what Jesus taught in the foot washing. Whoever wants to be the greatest among you must be the least and the servant of all. And I do think it's a sign of the times that today we want somebody to be a phenomenal speaker. We want somebody to have signs and wonders. We want somebody to have the great title before their name, after their name, this type of a ministry, that type of a ministry, this book or that book or this resource or that resource, this program or that program. You know, at the end of the day, when it comes down to what Jesus knows, 
None of that stuff matters if what's, what's taking place of what's happening is done out of the wrong motive. If we're not taking the platform that God has given us and pointing people directly and instantaneously and continually to Jesus Christ, then we are wasting the platform that God has given us. And Jesus couldn't be any clearer than the way he's saying it right here. In verse 47 of Luke chapter 20, they will receive the greater condemnation. Why is it that God would condemn people in a greater way? Because if you have a platform, if I have a platform, and that platform draws people only to ourselves and kind of to God, instead of drawing people primarily to God and then to ourselves, our priorities are askew. See, the terrible tragedy in ministry is that you could be somebody who kind of points people to Jesus Christ, but subtly, at an unseen, secret recesses of the heart place, you like the approval of people more than the approval of God. It does not matter the size of your platform. It only matters that you've got a platform. Use it for the glory of God. Use it so that people don't just praise you. Use it so that when people praise you, you immediately and instantaneously and continually point people to Almighty God. I'm telling you, more importantly, Jesus is telling you, he's telling me. If you're a follower of his, you have been given influence and the purpose of your life and the purpose of my life as disciples of Jesus Christ is to continually and perpetually point people to the Messiah, point people to Jesus, point people to God. The last time I checked, I didn't die for the forgiveness of the the sins of all the world. Last time you checked, you didn't die for the forgiveness of your own sins. You couldn't die, I couldn't die for the forgiveness of our own sins, let alone the sins of the world. You cannot clean a filthy table with a dirty rag. This is why Jesus had to be without sin, had to be perfect and flawless, so that he who did not know any sin could take away you and me, could take away the sins that you're responsible for, I'm responsible for, once and for all. And so be careful in this terrible tragedy in ministry that you don't take the way of the scribes, you don't walk the way of the scribes and begin to take credit where only credit is given to God, it's supposed to be given to God, and you don't begin to be the center of attention and corrupt what should be incorruptible, which is the worship and the adoration of God. Look with me now at Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. This is the second tragedy that we're looking at. And the idea here is that this is the the temple treasury. Some people believe that it was a box as it's translated here. Others believe that it could have been a room that somebody would have gone into and given their offering. And when they went into that room and gave their offering, the amount that they gave was announced for other people to hear. Imagine that. 
It doesn't matter whether it's the temple treasury or whether it was the offering box. Here it says offering box. And Jesus, he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. The equivalent is one 128th of a day's wages for the average laborer. One 128th, just a small fraction of a day's wages. She puts in two small copper coins, and Jesus sees it. This is a reminder for all of us. God sees it all. God sees it all. And while the sign of the times here, in this particular day and age, the tradition had become to be familiar with what everybody gives and to compare as if the, level, the, the playing field were not level, to compare the size of somebody's gift to the smallness of somebody else's gift, Jesus does what's counterintuitive and teaches us something not just about giving, but something much more significant than mere giving. Look with me. He saw the poor widow put in two small copper coins, verse three. He said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. Did you catch that? For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. She, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is not just about financial giving. This is about worship. This widow teaches us something about worship that is timeless. It's relevant, it's practical, it's pertinent for your life and for mine. See, we might think that we're not able to give to God because we don't have much to give to God. Ask the poor widow if what she had to give was significant to Almighty God. More importantly, ask Jesus. Who is giving the more important gift? Those who had the abundance to give and gave some out of their abundance or this one who gave when she didn't have anything to give. You see, until our worship costs us something, it's not worship. Until our worship costs us something, it is not worship. This is not just about giving. This is about worship. It's a worship issue. Name an area of life that is safely separated from worship and service to God. Can you think of one area of your life, one area of my life, that the Scriptures say, well, that doesn't have anything to do with worshiping God? So you and I were created in the image of God in the likeness of God, to give glory to God, to fellowship with God, to worship God. And in the passage of time, what begins to happen is that the blessings that God gives us become the things that we idolize. They become more important than the God who's given them to us. And you could make the classic mistake, I could make the classic mistake, I wish I could say I never get tempted with this, but I get tempted with it continually and so do you. You begin to think that what you have to give to God isn't significant because of the size. And you think, oh, if only I had this amount of money or that amount of money, then I could really give to God. 
Or you might think, because I've got this amount of money or whatever amount of money it is, now I'm really able to give to God. But Jesus raises the standard. Jesus levels the playing field. Jesus teaches us it is not the quantity of the gift that matters. It is the quality of the gift. And until our worship costs us something, until it hits us in the pocketbook, until it hits us in the wallet, it is not worship. Jesus is helping us understand there's a widow who doesn't have as much as a few pennies to her name, and she ends up giving more than quantitatively. Others were giving as a regular course, a regular practice of their worship to God. And what Jesus is saying is the people who are giving out of their abundance don't understand the first thing about worship. The whole idea of being a living sacrifice is that there are sacrifices being offered every part of your life in increasing, growing measure. We're giving more of ourselves, more of all that God has given to us for the glory of God, building his kingdom, honoring him. This is not a teaching about money and giving through money. This is a teaching that Jesus is giving us about worship. And the way we use the money that God gives us is one of the clearest indications of whether or not we have an attitude of gratitude. That attitude of worship to Almighty God. See, the tragedy is that you could go through life missing the reality that until and unless our worship costs us something, we don't understand the first thing about worship. You could go through your life, I could go through my life thinking that because we're giving this much in terms of a quantity, that that's what makes it significant before Almighty God. No, it's not the quantity. It is the quality. Jesus, by bringing to our attention, by bringing to the attention of the people in his day, Jesus is helping us understand that every single one of us has something to give to God. If this woman who had nothing turned that nothing into something. Listen. She turned that nothing into everything. There's not a person on this planet who has an excuse. Until and unless our worship costs us something, we don't understand the first thing about worship. You might do what I did for a while, thinking that someday when I get X amount of money, someday when I get this amount or that amount, then I'm going to really begin to have a significant impact for the glory of God. I want to plead with you right now. Don't be that stupid. Don't be that foolish. Don't be that self-centered. Don't be that naive. Don't be that arrogant. See, that was the fundamental problem 
that the scribes had. They were arrogant. I know so much about God, and that's what put them in a position of jeopardizing their own judgment, being judged more seriously, more severely before Almighty God, and God who plays with a level playing field deals the same way with you and me. I want to challenge you. If you think that you've got to have more money before you can give to God to get your checkbook and to open it up, to get your bank statements and open them up and to look at them and ask God, God, have I been giving you what rightly belongs to you? Have I been giving to you out of the abundance of what you've given to me or as an act of worship, giving to you what rightly belongs to you? You might say, you know, I've got too many financial difficulties right now to be concerned about that, to make that a priority in my life, and I can identify with that. I can. And so I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to see if it's true, and then we'll move on, because I know this is heavy to hear, but it's important to hear. One of the reasons why you might be experiencing financial difficulty and want and lack in other areas of your life could be because you've got holes in your purse, got holes in your pocketbook, got holes in your wallet. And why should Almighty God, who is the epitome of wisdom, give to you, give to me more money if we're not going to use that money as an act of worship to glorify Him? Why do I include myself in this? Because I know this from firsthand experience. Most of the lessons I've learned in life, I've learned from failure, not because I've avoided failure. And so why do I share from my own story? Because I don't want you to fail. I want you to succeed. Just try God and take him at his word. Say, you know what, God? I've robbed from you. I've stolen from you. I haven't put you first. I put myself first. Now I'm going to put you first, and I'm going to give to you the first fruits in my tithes, in my offerings, that 10% as a bare minimum. And I'm going to trust you. You know, I don't know what this widow was going to resort to after she gave all that she had. When you give all that you have as an act of worship to God, when your worship costs you something, then you're really walking by faith. I don't know what happened to this woman after she gave God everything she had, but God knew what happened to this woman after she gave to Almighty God. And that is the point. If you and I are only living according to what our natural, rationalistic minds are telling us, if we're living in ways that only make sense to us, that's not walking by faith. That's walking by sight. The whole idea of walking by faith is that I don't know how this is going to come out in the end, but I will not have God take second place in any area of my life. I will have God be, by practical definition in my life, all mighty God. And nowhere is that clearer in our lives. Nowhere is that clearer in our lives than in the area of God's money. You're going to have, I'm going to have a limited amount of money placed into our hands in the course of our lives. And what we do with that money has a direct correlation to our worship of God.
It's not just about giving, it's about worship. What we do with the money that God gives us is the clearest reflection of our attitude of gratitude or the lack. And when you understand who Jesus is, when I understand who Jesus is, see, it's a spiritual maturity issue. When we understand who Jesus is, when we understand the identity of Jesus, we begin to realize I cannot give God enough in response to all that he is for me and all that he has been for me and all that he's going to be for me. It all comes down to worship, an attitude of gratitude. Until our worship costs us something, we don't understand what worship is. And if we don't understand what worship is, it's because we don't understand who Jesus is. And now we come to the great mystery I told you we'd talk about two tragedies and a mystery, and now we go to verses 41 through 44, how this whole section began. Jesus said to them, the whole crowd, including the scribes, on the heels of the scribes complimenting him when they said, teacher, you've spoken well. Right on with this resurrection stuff. And Jesus would have had every opportunity. He's been given a huge softball to hit out of the park. He's given the opportunity right here and right now to return the compliment. And this is his response. He said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? See, the scribes would have believed this. The scribes would have taught this. Pharisees would have taught this, that the Messiah was a descendant of David. So he's presenting to the scribes who knew the scriptures, a passage of scripture, Psalm 110, verse 1. He's presenting to them a passage of scripture and asking them a theological question. Well, then how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Now, there are some who have postulated here that Jesus is negating this idea, the teaching in the scriptures that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. And they say that's why Jesus is asking this rhetorical question, because Jesus didn't believe it. Jesus was refuting the teaching by the scribes, the teaching by the Pharisees, the teaching by the teachers of the law that the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ was to be a descendant of David. But this is not the correct conclusion to come to when we take Jesus' words in the context of all of Luke's gospel and all the teachings of the scriptures. First, let's look at Psalm 110 Verse 1, so you see it in its Old Testament context for yourself. A psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now the word that's used here is translated into Lord. In the original Hebrew, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it, the word that's used there is kurios, which means Lord, but it means more than just master. It's the same word that's translated from the Hebrew the Masoretic text, the Hebrew translation of the scriptures, would have been the personal covenant name of God. So this would have been Yahweh. God himself says to the Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You know, first for us, we look at this and we say, well, what is this? What's being said here? How does it even make sense? And Jesus is saying, yeah, how, how would it make sense unless the identity 
of the Messiah were more than a mere mortal, if he also had a divine entity about himself, how could this make sense that he was a descendant from the line of David? That's what's being presented here. Jesus is using this as a teachable moment to help the scribes understand, listen, you guys who are studying the scriptures, you're not paying attention to the scriptures. You guys who are studying the scriptures are not paying attention to the word who became flesh who's standing right here in front of you. And this is something that Luke is presenting consistently through his gospel account. Look with me at Luke chapter one, verse 27. Then we'll look at verses 32 and 33. Luke 1, 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man. This is speaking about Mary, who's going to be giving birth to Jesus, whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. It's presented from the earliest time in Luke's gospel that the Messiah, the Christ, the deliverer of the nation of Israel would come from the line of David. And then we look here at verses 32 through 35 of Luke's gospel. This is a major teaching in the gospel of Luke, that the Messiah would be a descendant from David, King David. Look at verses 32 through 35. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. See, not just a mere mortal, but divine entity here as well. And the Lord God, will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be? Since I'm a virgin. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And so Luke is after chapter after chapter, he's presenting the human identity of the Messiah being a descendant of David, and even more than that, the divine identity of the Messiah being more than a mere mortal. So that when we get to chapter 2, verse 4 of Luke's gospel, this is what he says. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. Again, he's presenting very clearly the human ancestry of the Messiah, that the Messiah would come from David. And then when we see in Luke chapter 18, in Luke chapter 18, there's this healing of the blind beggar. In verse 38, he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. This is not just a phrase that's being used to just give a, a, a nice, warm, polite title to Jesus. To be called the son of David instead of the son of Joseph or the son of Mary is significant. And Luke is intentionally bringing this to our attention, the readers of his gospel, the listeners of his gospel, to help the listeners, to help the readers connect the dots. And Jesus is doing the same thing by bringing Psalm 110, verse 1 to their attention. This is a teaching in all of the scriptures in Romans chapter one, beginning in verse one through verse four. Look at what we read. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets, through his prophets in the holy scriptures. Concerning his son, he was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection 
resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is a repeated teaching in the Scriptures, an unmistakable teaching in the Scriptures that is at first a mystery to us. At first, it's something that we look at, well, how is it possible for the Messiah to have an identity that is both divine and human, fully human, a descendant from David, and yet fully divine, the Son of the Most High God. That's the whole thing that's presented in the Scriptures. What's being presented is that the Messiah would have a divine and a human identity. He'd not be a mere mortal. And what Jesus is doing to the scribes is saying to them, listen, it's right here in your own scriptures that you study for yourselves. It's right here standing before you. He is right here standing before you. The purpose of my miracles, the purpose of my teachings, the purpose of everything that I've done, everything that I've said is to help you understand The Lord said to my Lord, the Father said to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And what Jesus is trying to help the scribes understand, what Jesus was helping his disciples understand, is what Jesus wants every dabbler to understand as they make the transition to becoming a disciple. And it's something that we must not only understand the first time, but continually revisit again and again, that the identity of Jesus Christ coming down on the right understanding of who Jesus is, uniquely God and from the line of David, makes him the one. You can trust Jesus with every aspect of your life, every circumstance that you're going through. You can put faith in Jesus because of who he is. The scribes didn't get it. Many of us today don't get it, but a disciple gets it. Jesus is the almighty son of God, the one whose ancestor was David himself. And why does it go back to David? Because David was the king of Israel. And the Messiah will one day be acknowledged as the king of Israel, ruling and reigning on David's throne. It goes back even before that to the Abrahamic covenant where God said all nations on earth will be blessed through one of your offspring. And what's being presented here in the scriptures by Jesus, the master communicator, communicating masterfully. He doesn't want to be misunderstood. He wants to be understood. And he wants you to understand and me to understand as well. You can trust Jesus with every area of your life because Jesus really was and Jesus really is the promised Savior, the Messiah and the Christ. been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.